We're at the end of our study. Most of you have thank you. Most of you have already been around, so I think you all agree if you've been here more than once, and perhaps by the end of this you'll agree that these books provoke us to belief. They agitate us into unrest, or they give us comfort in the midst of our unrest. And what they do is they move us to believing something good and honest and true about who God is. Sometimes something that's challenging, but always good, honest, and true. So this semester, I've apologized slash defended the minor prophets. So let's move into what we've done. Again, the big pat in the back session that we have, where you think about all the territory we've covered in just a few weeks, okay? Um, in just the last, I don't know, 14 weeks, 13 weeks, we've looked at... Amos, Jonah, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Joel, Haggai, Zechariah, and now we're going to look at Malachi. Or as a friend of mine in college used to call it, Malachi. (laughs) The Italian prophet. (laughs) Or pasta dish. Um, So let me uh, give you a little bit of background on on Malachi. And I'm going to try to say Malachi. I'm sure I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but the historical background is this. Um, Malachi lived and spoke somewhere around 460 to 433 BC. That's about 60 to 90 years after Zechariah and Haggai, and Haggai, the people that we've studied the last two weeks. They've written ministry about 520. Um, and so here's some historical buildup about why that date's important. Guys, I just want you to learn one thing. 586 BC. Anybody? Fall of Jerusalem. Gosh, I'm so proud. We've accomplished something. Um, you know, make that stack of stones. It's beautiful. Okay, so that's great. So the fall of Jerusalem, Babylon conquers Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed. Big deal in Israel history. Um, and after that, they go into exile. And then the Persians, about 50 years later, conquer the Babylonians. And the first emperor, Cyrus, says, hey, all of you... All you Israelites can go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your homes, rebuild Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. And so in about 538 B.C., uh, and then the years following, about 50,000 Israelites go and back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And in 515 B.C., the temple of God was rebuilt. So again, remember, that's still about 55 years before Malachi. So Malachi is the last of the prophets. And he's speaking while the people, although they have a rebuilt temple, are still small. They're still poor. They're still puny. And they're still powerless. They went from being a superpower under King David and King Solomon to becoming a third world developing nation. That's their story, and they're sticking to it at this point. So that's the historical background. So here we have to ask ourselves, what is the book of Malachi about? And remember, I'm just summarizing this in a phrase. I'm taking all of the minor prophets, this, this kind of density and goodness, and I'm doing a phrase. And I'm going to do a word. So if the minor prophets before Malachi majored in these themes, injustice, grace, redemption, the kingdom of God, God as warrior king, God's joy, faith, humility, repentance, God's glory, and atonement... That's a lot. Um, Malachi majors in this one main theme, worship. Okay. So we're going to talk about worship tonight. 
The book of Malachi gives us six instances where God, through Malachi, interrogates, asks hard questions about our worship. What is worship, anyway? What does worship look like? What should it look like? Why is it important? Those are some of the questions that, are, that Malachi is addressing in this book. And we're going to look at a key passage tonight that not only answers some of these questions, but also serves to be the shocking ending of the Old Testament. The last revelation of God for 400 years until John the Baptist in a passage we just read in Luke 1. That's what we're looking at tonight. Well, that's well timed. Um, <laughs> but I need more cell phone news to come in the middle of my sermons. That, that really helps me. Okay, so somebody just give me some sort of like dun, 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 in the middle of it. Um, anyway, so if you turn your Bibles or your green, your green or blue sheet to Malachi chapter 3, verses 13, and then Malachi, through Malachi 4, verse 6. So, if you're looking for it, uh, Psalms is always a good reference tool. Hit the Psalms, take a right, or you can just look for the New Testament marker, Matthew, and just kind of take a little left. And Malachi's right before that. So would you stand for the reading of Scripture? We're going to look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 13, through Malachi 4, 6. We're reading from the English... <coughs> See if I can say, speak English. We're reading from the English Standard Version translation of your of the Bible. It's in your bulletin. Okay, Malachi three verses thirteen through Malachi four verse six. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of Hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. And evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming when uh, it shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall shred down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then there's sort of an appendix. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And then listen to the way that the Old Testament ends in these two verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that should sound a lot like Luke 1, too. All right. Friends, these are the words of God. And they're more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And they're sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I just ask that you'd be with this moment. Um, lots of things inside of my heart going on. Um, stresses and strains. Um, Weariness, uh, excitement, um, 
And I pray that you would also be with the motions there as well. And I pray that you'd be with everyone's hearts and ears to hear and to believe um, that you are a God who cares about us enough to give us, um, to ask us hard questions, to poke around in our lives, even when it feels like the game operation. And I pray that you, O oh Father, would help us to know that your Spirit's at work. Um, show us through its fullness what it means to savor your word, what it means to sit under your word, what it means to, to meditate on your word day and night. And I pray that this would be an exercise in that pursuit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. So in middle school... I went to a small school that was set out in the woods, some old woods in Columbus, Ohio. Okay? In fact, there was this old house in those woods that was about over 150 years old. So I think that my fifth grade teachers decided to be a great idea to create an archaeological project. Okay? So there's this overwhelming mixture of history and, and social studies and English and science. But essentially, every student would spend a few weeks digging a square foot of dirt looking for arrowheads and nails, and actually finding pieces of trash. That was basically what this entailed, okay? Can you get the picture? Um, it was, like, really ambitious for a middle school project, and, and there it was. And while my friends and I were the kind of kids, and I was this kind of kid in middle school, forgive me, who scoffed at everything and kind of rolled our eyes or just got in trouble uh, most, most days, um, I was secretly kind of fascinated by this project in a very nerdy closet way. (laughs) Let me just give you some context. Indiana Jones was popular at the time. So I thought this was my opportunity to find that rare artifact in the woods of my school that the Nazis would try to kill me over who were already dead. So that was sort of my kind of back of my mind impression Anyway, the weeks of digging the dirt did not prove to be an Indiana Jones moment for me, sadly. And the next year's sixth graders, uh, we, for science class, had to make the archaeological sites. So we had, to, we had to sort of hammer in the stakes, tie the twine between the stakes, mar- you know, level off the dirt, uh, make sure that everything was set for the next year's class to do the sort of excavation archaeology stuff that we did the year before. Well, I'm going to say, I don't mean this to brag, but... I and my friend Billy got the best job. We were hammering the stakes, which is pretty much, if you think about the other jobs, way better. So we were swinging a hammer at stakes, knocking them in. Um, I had done a few. Billy had done a few. We were rotating the hammer back and forth. And all of a sudden, I missed the stake somehow. I must have been talking. I don't know. Maybe I was just uncoordinated. Still am. (laughs) And, And the neck of the hammer hit the wooden stake, and it broke. And all of a sudden, the, wooden, the hammer head kind of wobbled and it fell perfectly into the square that we were excavating, right? That we were setting aside for an archaeological site in the middle of it, okay? And so this is one of those moments as a, fifth, a sixth grader at this point that you kind of panic, right? You kind of think of all the possible scenarios in your head. You think trouble's coming. You broke something. You don't know what to do about it. I thought, should I tell my teacher? Then I thought... Well, how much trouble am I going to get in? Is this like a little trouble or a lot of trouble? And then I thought, if I tell my teacher, do I have to pay for it? How expensive is this hammer? Was this a great hammer or a small hammer? I mean, was, was it a cheap or expensive? 
And so I was thinking about all these things, um, and then I looked down, and I saw that the hammerhead was laying perfectly in the middle of this archaeological site. And so my friend Billy and I looked at each other, and we did what any sixth grader would do. We buried the hammerhead in the site. (laughs) Okay? So there we were, dug a little hole, took the hammerhead, put it in the hole, covered it with dirt, and we called it a day. <laughs> we just took the other end of the handle, chucked it into the woods somewhere, <laughs> lost and found. Okay. So weeks later, maybe even months, Billy and I were walking back from a school assembly, and we, we happened to catch to the corner where I had a display case that was new, and it was in front of the science room. <laughs> Okay? And it was the fifth graders' archaeological finds. And front and center, highlighted with like the nice light and the display case on it, was the hammerhead. <laughs> and the worst part was that not only were the teachers fooled, but some local experts of the Ohio Historical Society had dated it on a card mid to late 1800s. <laughs> True story. True story. So, at first, Billy and I like couldn't breathe. And then after we caught our breath, we kind of thought we were pretty cool. Like some sort of reverse Indiana Jones action. And so we ended up kind of talking to our friends about it. And then our friends talked to our frenemies about it. And then our frenemies talked to the class tattletales about it. And all of a sudden, we were in huge trouble. (laughs) Quickly, the hammerhead was removed from the case. (laughs) And I'm assuming thrown away somewhere. Well, I guess my sixth grader takeaway of this moment, the story, was a cynical, what's the point of anything? Right? I wondered if there was anything to archaeology behind finding trash or discovering fake relics that were actually trash. I wondered, did other students actually discover arrowheads, or were they actually just sort of misshapen pieces of gravel? How do we know? Sort of my existential crisis. I mean, here's the deal. If my friend Billy and I could fool all my teachers and a lot of the local experts in history about a hammerhead we broke, was there anything really worth discovering? Was there any find out there? I guess at that moment in my sixth grade heart and mind, I felt like the world had just lost a lot of its wonder. It had lost a lot of its fearful, hopeful wonder. This cynical, what's the point moment I had in the sixth grade is exactly what Malachi's original audience was experiencing roughly 2,500 years ago. All the major and the minor prophets, including recently Haggai and Zechariah, living in the same situation, had given these wonderful, over-the-top promises about life after exile in Babylon was supposed to be like. But when the people got out of exile, they were still small, they were still weak, they were still poor, and they were asking good questions. Hey, where are all those rivers of wine that are supposed to be flowing out of the mountains? Where are those? Or, how about the tidal wave of treasure that's supposed to come pouring forth from the nations? They looked around at nation, at, at nature, excuse me, and they sat there and said, I don't see lions and lambs snuggling. I don't see that going on. I don't see peace and harmony going on. 
Still seems like survival of the fittest out there. And then they, after they finished the temple in 515, they still looked around and said, Hey, where are we? Why aren't we a superpower yet? Why don't we have this like leader, king, messiah, priest, prophet dude leading us into glory? What's going on? Certainly at that moment, the world felt like it had lost some fearful and hopeful wonder for ancient Israel. And this feeling had crept into the heart of their worship. Whether formally at the temple, or whether it's the daily faithful moments of the marketplace and the family life. It's my guess tonight that we don't have to look too far inside ourselves the present, or too long into our past experiences, to find a feeling of cynicism that affects our worship. I mean, who hasn't done the, devo- the double-blind experiment in prayer? Do you know what that is? Double-blind, like the taste test, like the medical exams. So you sit there and say, I really want something. And one time I want something, I'm going to pray for it really hard. And the other time I'm going to do nothing. And let's just see what happens. Okay? And who here hasn't had the moment when they get mixed results? When they pray for something, well, when they don't pray for something that they want, and all of a sudden it happens... Or worse, you pray for it really hard, and it doesn't happen. But our passage tonight speaks into this cynicism. Ancient Israel's bitterness over pushback promises, and our bitterness over unanswered prayers, and frankly, it also speaks into the sixth grader inside of us all that's shaking our fists and saying, what's the point of it all? What's the point? What's the spiritual point? The book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 13, and through chapter 4, verse 6, shocks us with God's wonder. It shocks us. In all of its fearfulness, and in all of its hope. In a sentence, God, through Malachi, tells us something that's shocking. God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire who is worthy of fearful worship. And, at the same time, in Jesus Christ, God is a warm Father worthy of hopeful trust. Do you see this? It's it's an incredible placing beside two things that are complete opposites, but also completely the same in God. God is a consuming fire worthy of fearful worship, And at the same time, he is a kind-hearted, tender father, worthy of hope and trust. Our passage describes who God is and how to worship him in a style called a disputation. This is an ancient Near Eastern classical style that's basically like passionate Q&A. So God basically asks a lot of hard questions. And the people sort of give some half-hearted answers, and then God kind of takes them to task. That's sort of what it's like. Imagine the single light bulb swinging wildly in the interrogation room. And that's what you've got the book of Malachi. Okay? So let me give you the text example. It goes like this. God asks a question. Verse 13. Why do you have such harsh words against me? God gives our hearts the people's response. How have we spoken against you? Verse 13. Then God responds to our question, You say serving me is worthless. Verses 14 through 15. 
And then God gives us the details about why and how to worship him in verses 16 all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. Okay? Now that's super complicated, and I can't preach that, so I'm going to make this very simple. <laughs> Let's be honest. If I go past two, two sermon points, it's a long day. So it's two points, okay? and here's what it looks like. It's a simple outline. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, tell us the background to worship. Okay? Chapter, thir- chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, the background to worship. And then chapter 3, verses 16, through chapter 4, verse 6, we see the why and the how of worship. So we're just going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about the background to worship and the why and the how of worship. And that's what Malachi, I think, is addressing. So let's begin with the background to worship. And verses 13 through 15. So I said earlier, these, why don't you look there with me if you could. I said earlier in these verses, God is engaging us in some passionate Q&A, some passionate question and answer. And you can see here, God states his case. Your words against me have been hard. But what's beautiful in the Hebrew is that that case is even harder. He says that this, it's actually God's people, we are saying, we wish to overrule you, God. Think about a courtroom, overruled. That's what's going on in our hearts in the Hebrew. In the original language of this passage, we've heard out God, but we think we know still what's best. So we said, there, there, God, I got your opinion on that one, now I'm going to go take my opinion to the bank. That's sort of what's going on in this passage. And that's what God starts with his questions. Interestingly, your reaction right now, perhaps, deep down inside or maybe at the surface, is exactly the same reaction that ancient Israel had later in verse 13. Right? Think about what they say to that. What? Are you kidding me? How have we spoken? How have we thought? How have we acted against you in this way, God? No way. Prove it. But you know what? God doesn't even have to prove it. Do you know why? Because he's already proven it throughout the entire book of Malachi. I'm just going to give you a survey and I'm going to try to apply it at the same time. Chapter 1. That's where we see that our worship is half-hearted. Church, our prayers, can easily become things that we check off of a list, or they can become adventures and multitasking. Okay? Second, chapter 2, we see relationships can be self-serving and manipulative. Do we treat our friends like a 7-Eleven? Do we come to our friends and say, hey, we want to hang out with you if you're doing something fun? Have we ever hung out with people when we don't think they're doing something fun? Do we, do we hang out with people who don't offer us things that we want? And earlier in chapter 3, we see what we worship. Our ultimate concerns, that these things are reflected in the way that we use money. In other words, I can tell you and you can tell me what we worship by our monthly balance electronic statements. Done. Okay? You can tell I really like coffee. That's what, I'm going to put that on the table. <laughs> Just transparent. Okay? Maybe it's an ultimate concern. Okay. So in the light of this evidence of our worship, our relationships, and our money, the Lord moves straight into the murmur of our hearts, the hidden thoughts in verses 14 through 15. And this is going to feel like you just thought about this, or maybe this is going to feel really uncomfortable. But listen to verses 14 through 15 through the lens of thinking, maybe I think this sometimes if I'm trying at all to follow Jesus. You have said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. 
evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Look, I could talk, I go a number of angles of this passage. But when I hear this passage, I don't hear complaining only. Behind the complaining, I hear a real groaning. A real longing for justice and peace. Do you hear that? Do you feel that? The ancient church in Israel wanted the prophesied Messiah to come, and he wanted, and they wanted him to put all things to rights, and they wanted him to rejoice over well-doing. They wanted the arrogant evildoers to be punished, and they wanted the followers who were weak and felt totally cheerless to be exalted. That's what they wanted. That's what we want. And I'm going to prove it to you two ways. Okay? I think we also feel some of these longings for justice personally and today. Don't we? For instance, if you're a Christian here tonight, don't you have the moments when the grass looks greener on the other side of the spiritual fence? I know I do. Right? Think about it. Sometimes acting Christian, sometimes doing the right thing looks like passing on things that look a lot of fun. Things that look like fun in terms of illegal things, maybe, or maybe just selfish things. And sometimes, when we're called to pass on these kind of things, these illegal or selfish things, it feels like we're passing on life itself. Life feels like mourning, wearing all black, and being cheerless. That's how they're describing life, okay? It looks fun from a distance. And sometimes it doesn't feel like there are any real consequences that happen for people who choose to live selfishly or to commit wrongdoing. Right? The stoners still seem smarter than you. Right? Okay? Oh, I, didn't, I don't do marijuana because it makes me stupid. Well, he's still smarter than you. Okay? The cheaters... Okay? The cheaters still get high grades. Maybe higher than you. Or that guy who hooks up with a girl every single house party he goes to still gets the girl that you like. Even though you're the good guy who's forgotten in the background. But these deep grumblings aren't just sort of personal teenage angst. Okay, You see this in the cultural stories that carry weight for thousands upon thousands of years. Think about the greatest stories you ever heard told. The people of Ithaca are longing for King Odysseus to return and to put things to rights by destroying the arrogant suitors who are terrorizing his family, his house, and his kingdom. The Odyssey. Robin Hood and his merry men are just stopgap measures in the prevailing evil of the Sheriff of Nottingham. Waiting for who? For King Richard to come back from the Crusades and make all things right and new and just. Middle Earth is under the dark sway of Mordor and the evil eye of Sauron. And oppression is everywhere and everything is dark and evil. And the only hope for goodness to prevail is a legendary king named Aragorn. Finally, and of course, in the land of Narnia, the spell of the White Witch... Under the spell of the white witch, everything is cold and dark and frosty. Delicious. But <laughs> frozen. But there is a rumor that the winter is thawing. That the winter is thawing. And Aslan, 
Aslan, the lost king of the land, Aslan is on the move. And the answer that our passage gives us to these aches, these bone-shaking desires, whether in our personal lives or in our cultural narratives, is these bone-deep, heart-welling desires for joy and for justice and for peace. The answer that our passage gives us is a promise. A promise. The promise is the return of the king. The promise is that the king from the line of David will come and he will right all the wrongs and he will adore all the rights. That King Jesus will come in all of his glory and all of his might and all of his triumph with angels surrounding him and what in a beautiful, wonderful way and he will come with judgment. <laughs> oh my gosh! Judgment? Sid, you're preaching on judgment at your last sermon at New Mexico State? I'm sorry, that's what the text calls for. And, look! <laughs> judgment? Judgment? Why judgment? Some of you think, this is the reason I'm not a Christian. This is the thing I hate most about Christianity. This is the thing I hide in my back pocket and pretend doesn't exist when I talk to my friends about Jesus. But, just like our cultural stories that end in good defeating evil, judgment is God's answer to our deep-seated longings for justice. Here's what I mean. You cannot simultaneously hold that Christianity is a problem with evil. Okay? That God is good, he's all-powerful, but evil exists and bad people prosper. That's the problem of evil. You can't hold that at the same time as you can hold that judgment's bad. That God's judgment's bad. Why is why can't you hold both of those things? Because God's ultimate day of judgment is his way of eliminating evil's existence and making the arrogant and the wicked punished for their sins and their consequences for their sins. Do you get that you cannot hold those two as accusations because one informs the other in our Christian belief? Listen to the way that theologian Tom Wright puts it. I think it's beautiful. We need to remind ourselves that God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression. The thought that there might be one day, someday, a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place, and the poor and the weak are given their due, is the best news there can ever be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world of exploitation, a world of wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. A good God must be a God of judgment. So interestingly, the longings behind our complaints against God, the background to our worship in verses 13 through 15, lead us to a depiction of the just and joyful day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, that final judgment day, when King Jesus comes back again, he returns and heaven comes to earth, and finally the lion and the lamb do snuggle. Okay? That day becomes a wondrous view of God, and that's what the rest of the passage is about. The rest of the passage from 3.16 through 4.6 is about the God who appears in that glorious day. And that God who appears in a glorious day, because of who he is, changes the way that we approach him. 
If we see him as the passage depicts him, we will approach him differently and uniquely. That's the whole idea of the why of worship is who God is, and the how of worship is how who God is changes the way that we approach him. And that's what the second point of this sermon is. How do we approach him? And I cannot cover this passage. I've given up. And really all I'm going to do is give you a couple of images of God and the way that changes how we worship him. So we're looking at two images of God and how it changes how we worship him. Since I'm already speaking about God's judgment and everyone's already uncomfortable, why don't I just keep going through offensive topics to an American audience and talk about God as a consuming fire? Okay, so we're going to talk about that out of order. We're talking about verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. God is a consuming fire. Here we see because God is a consuming fire that it changes our worship, another offensive topic, to fear. Fear. So because God is a consuming fire, worship involves fear. The language described in Jesus' coming is clear. God is a fire that will destroy all the arrogant, all the evildoers, down to the very roots. It's subterranean fire. This is uncomfortable, isn't it? I just want to sit in this for a second. Super uncomfortable. I mean, let's think about it. Let me show you how uncomfortable it is. I want you to think about all the spiritual bumper stickers you've ever seen. Okay? Just for a second. Coexist, that's a cool one. Um, lots of really cool little symbols on that one. Okay, how about Jesus hearts you? Not Jesus loves you, Jesus hearts you. Okay? That's a cool one that you see every once in a while. When's the last time when you were seeing at a red light, you looked down at a bumper sticker that you saw, someone said, uh, my daughter is an honors child at, I don't know, like Tanglewood Elementary, okay? And right next to it said, my God, it's a consuming fire. <laughs> When's the last time that happened? Does anyone put that on their license, on their, on their bumper sticker? No, Okay. But if we read the scriptures carefully, especially Old Testament, even the New, especially Hebrews 12 and 13, we have to wrestle with God as a white-hot fire as well as a pasty lover boy. Okay, we have to deal with both of those things simultaneously. Okay? <laughs> Jesus loves people, meek and mild, and also he's a consuming fire. And we have to be able to, to match those things in our head. Okay? And perhaps it would be helpful to ask ourselves in our modern American mindsets that what, it, what does it mean that God is depicted as a fire over and over again in, in, in the Bible? What, does that have any relevance? Is it maybe that we don't like that as the reason that we don't read those passages? I want, I want us to do that before we make God into a giant beanie baby. That's what I want, okay? I think everything in American society wants to make God into a giant beanie baby. Collectible, um, soft, snuggly. Children, children's play. Okay? I love that scene in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan discovers Aslan, that's Lewis's Jesus, is a lion. And I love the first question she asks. It's such a modern American question. Is he safe? Is he safe? He's a lion. Is he safe? Look, you have to understand this is a pet peeve. When I was in graduate school in Orlando, we had a Christian radio station that the motto of the Christian radio station was safe for the little ears. Safe for the little ears. Please, for the love of Pete, if you ever have a radio station, do not name it Safe for the Little Ears. Why? Because the gospel is not about safety for little children. The gospel is not about that. Because I love the response of Mr. Beaver to Susan in the line which in the wardrobe. What does he say? Is he safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? <laughs> He's not safe. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. 
and he's the king, I tell you. Isn't it amazing to think about that Jesus, like Aslan, is not safe, but he's good and he's the king. And so our, our worship reflects his character. We fear him. And fearing him doesn't mean that we pee in our pants and we quake in our boots. Okay, that's not what fearing him looks like. Fearing him merely means that we have an ultimate regard for him. We give our entire allegiance, all of our esteem, and true reverence to God. And we see the effects of this ultimate allegiance for the good opinion and the kingly power of Jesus. We see that effect in the way that we handle every other fear. This is so beautiful. If you fear God, all other fears in your life become powerless. That's a beautiful promise. If God's the thing that you, the person that you fear most in your life, everything else becomes powerless. Let me give you a few examples. If we truly believe that God calls us to be children in Jesus Christ, then suddenly mom's guilt trips and dad's constant criticisms lose their sting. If we believe that Jesus is a friend to sinners, suddenly our friends' opinions of us control us less. If we believe that God, that Jesus gave his perfect life through his matchless death on the cross, all of a sudden, the fear of failing, whether it's a class or a relationship or life itself, gets declawed. In verses 18 and, and verse 2, sorry, I'm moving backwards, chapter 3, 18, and then chapter 4, verse 2, they tell us more good news. By trusting in Jesus, God's hot and just punishment for our arrogance and evil gets applied to Jesus. And the best way I can do this is describe a scene I've never seen, but I trust is true. That in a prairie fire, the reason that prairie hen chicks survive is because the healing wing of the prairie mother goes over the chicks and the fire consumes her and not the chicks. And that's exactly what happens in Jesus. The the incredible justice that the flame of his justice covers and consumes Jesus on the cross and we are strangely warmed but not destroyed by that and that's actually what these verses are talking about in chapter 4 the imagery transforms from ducking and covering under the healing wind wing of Jesus to a beautiful scene calves leaping from a stall And I want you to see this, that the same justice that takes our Lord Jesus also transforms us into strangely warmed creatures. That same fire. We enthusiastically and sometimes awkwardly worship God with the warm light of Jesus' love. And it looks a lot like a calf, just born. (laughs) Kicking and stumbling, scooting and prancing, in the warm sunshine of a farmer's field. That's a beautiful picture of worship. I mean, can you imagine if you really believed that the cross saved you from all that, and then you kind of came out of it, you kind of, I mean, I would stumble, I stumble, I fall, I prance, I look awkward on a daily basis. That's my spiritual gift to the nations. But, look, so we can already see that the way our worship is, is, is not only fear, but also hope-filled trust. You can already see this moving, okay? Verse 17 seals the deal. On the day of the Lord, the King, God, will claim those who fear Him. He will say, you are mine. And, he will, and those who esteem His name, He will be righteousness to them. 
He will make them righteous, and he will make them shine. In the words of Chuck DeGroat, a former professor of mine, we will shine like a jewel in the engagement ring of God's grace. We will shine like a jewel in the engagement ring of God's grace. I love that imagery because it captures what the promise means. We are shining even now like a jewel in an engagement ring to come. An engagement that will be consummated in a marriage supper of the Lamb to come. And I also really appreciate the way that Vito Ayuto, uh, a former RUF minister and the lead singer of Welcome Wagon, rephrases the promises of verse 17. He draws out the imagery of God's father and king. I, you've got to listen to this. We're probably going to play this, but it's so beautiful. I love the way he does it. Verse 17. You shall be my very own. On that day, I cause you to be my special home. I will spare you as a man has compassion on his son who does the best he can. I mean, I, I'm just going to read the last part. I shall spare you as a man who has compassion on his son who does the best he can. What an encouraging hope for those of you who are like me, perhaps, that feel like the best we can is not righteous enough. It's not good enough. It's not perfect enough. In Jesus Christ, all of that is spared. He smiles upon you. You are a jewel in his engagement ring. You are a beloved child of God. And so am I, if we believe. And these are the last pictures of God, of worship, for 400 years. I mean, can you believe the nerve, the chutzpah of God to end his Old Testament like this? I mean, he has the word destruction, for Pete's sake. He's not messing around. Okay? Can you imagine that? But what I love is it's just like a, it's a story in search of an ending. It's an incomplete narrative that you know is a cliffhanger. You just have to read the next chapter. And what's the next chapter? What's the next book? What's that set of books but the New Testament? And we hear the next piece of revelation comes from John the Baptist's mouth, the new Elijah, who says the very verses that we have in the passage of Malachi to Zacharias in the temple in the Holy of Holies. That's amazing. And so what we have here is that Jesus is going to come. The first Christmas means something. And you know, his, his life, his death, and his resurrection are going to make some of our failed promises come true. But not all the way. And that's hard. That's hard. You see, Odysseus walked the shores of his kingdom disguised as a beggar with no form or majesty and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, Aragorn lived among us and began to fight for us, but we only knew him as a loner with a strange name, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Aslan was shaved and slain on the table of stone that was a cross, but a deeper magic from the beginning of time put death to death and all of its sorrows. So here's what I'd like to end with. The sixth grader inside of us all. Here's my question for that sixth grader. Will we roll the eyes of our hearts at uncomfortable spiritual truths? 
Will we roll the eyes of our hearts at uncomfortable spiritual truths? Or will we love and sing and wonder at a God who is simultaneously a king, a fire, and a father? That's what faith is, that choice. Every morning, every day, every hour, every moment. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, clearly a difficult passage. I say that every week. Um, And I pray and I'm thankful for the minor prophets that just shake our cage (laughs) and tell us, ah, you avoid things, Druin. Um, You avoid things, Sid. You avoid things that you don't want to hear, that you don't want to preach on, that you don't want to be the final words that you say to a people for 400 years. And I pray that you would help me Help these folks gathered here to hear your word, to know your mercy, to know your kindness, to know that the power of the fire is merged with the gentleness of a father, to know what it means to have a a good, powerful God, a God good enough to save us, to rescue us, to care for us, to know the numbers of hairs on our head, and to know when a sparrow falls to the ground outside of the will of our own doing, but not of yours, Father. And I pray that we'd also know the goodness of a God who does not spare anything, does not spare his only son to die on a cross, not in cosmic child abuse, but in a sacrifice that leaves us breathless and there's no words to mutter about. We ask, Father, that you would be in the midst of that decision. Are we going to trust the mystery? Are we going to look at wonder even when it's flecked with fear? or whatever else. I pray that you'd help us, give us eyes of faith, encourage us, even when it's small and weak. In Jesus' name we pray.